the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Hello. Shipping has been talking about sustainable development for a long time. Industry experts call for serious commitment now before it's too late. So what's really holding us back? Is the answer to be found in zero carbon fuels, in which case, how many years will it be until the right fuel or fuels have been trialed and tested under all conditions? A global infrastructure built, alterations made to ship engines and training given into what happens if. What can and what should be done while all this is going on to reduce, if not eliminate, harmful emissions? And what has shipping discovered from several years of digitalization to move us in the right direction? I'm Richard Clayton, Chief Correspondent at Lloyd's List. Today, I'm joined by Roger Strevens, who is Vice President of Global Sustainability at Verlinius Wilhelmsen, the vehicle carrier business, which controls 136 ships, serving 15 trade routes and six continents. Welcome to this Lloyd's List podcast, Roger. Thank you, Richard. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, now, Valenius Wilhelmsen says its purpose is sustainable logistics for a world in motion. And that suggests sustainability for you is more than just greener ships. Yeah, I think you're exactly right with that assessment. I think it speaks to the culture of the company. And you know that they say sort of culture eat strategy for breakfast. Uh, and I think that's quite important when you consider the scale of the challenge that we face um, on sustainability and specifically with uh, the, the environmental part in the shipping industry. It's, I think it's important to have as your, as, as your sort of your cultural fan, foundation stone because it's a one company effort that's involved in making this challenge, uh, making a success, success of it. It's not just, in other words, the technical department who need to come up with solutions, because when you consider the costs that are involved, there are financial uh, stakeholders and so on, the finance uh, department. There's the commercial team, because there may be cost pass through to consider. So it's part of the, the commercial discussion. This is part of uh, uh, the strategy and planning departments. Um, it's also part of, uh, of HR. And uh, and I re the, me the reason I say that, and I think this group tends, the stakeholder group tends to be forgotten, is because people don't just want a career. They want to contribute increasingly to something of a, uh, of a greater purpose. And sustainability is one very good um, um, stratagem to pursue when you're trying to create a purpose to, to attract the best talent in a, a global uh, talent marketplace. And to to engage and motivate the the work uh, you know your the the people that you already have uh, working for you. So for all of those reasons, strategy is uh, our sorry rather sustainability is a lot more than greener ships for us. So the sharper focus uh, of industry discussion ha has been on the fuels. Now, what part can digital solutions play uh, in the supply chain while the fuels are under trial? What have you been doing? I think, you know, if you look at the challenges that we have, you know, I think there are possibly, you know, you could categorize it into three major uh, uh, buckets. One being what solutions can you have for, uh, fuel solutions can you have for existing ships? 
what can you do uh, in terms of propulsion systems for new vessels? But you also need to have a way to get more from the energy you're using, whether it's a new ship or an existing ship. In other words, operational efficiency will remain a perennial focus for the, for the industry. In our business, it's the foundation of how we compete. And so when you look at operational efficiency, it's I think that's where the tie-in to, to digitalization is particularly clear because until recently, the standard for uh, insight on performance of a vessel was a noonday report, which gave you 12 or whatever, 20 manual entry KPIs once a day for an asset worth, let's say, $100 million. And you compare that to a factory of $100 million where you have a central control room with inputs from hundreds of instruments in real time, there's a very, very wide distance. Now, fortunately, because the cost and bandwidth of communications between vessels and shore has improved so beyond recognition, we're now at a point where we're able to gather information from the hundreds of instruments that are on board vessels, beam it up into the cloud, put the information into a data lake, and run analytics on top of that data to find the hidden, uh, you know, the gems, efficiency gems in the uh, uh, amidst hidden amidst the data. That's I think where you know digitalization is a very interesting um, and virtuous role to play because it makes business sense and it makes environmental sense. Now, when I used to visit your offices in in Lysaka in uh, in Norway, um, oh, 15 years ago, or so there was a model there of the Orcel uh, ship, which was a, a a future vision of a zero emission vessel, wasn't it? Now, in September last year, you launched the Ocean Wind uh, concept, which is a wind powered pure car and truck carrier. Tell me how that project is developing. That's right. Um, so, so your cell vessel, like you say, I think it was one of the perhaps the original of the species of the uh, zero emission concept vessel. And it was important first, you know, just because it set a, a, a gave a made a statement of where we see saw the business needing to go. And that was back in 2005, you know, before the environment was invented, <laughs> some might say. Um, but the idea has stayed with us and it's given us a way to measure our progress. And like you mentioned, uh, that we recently launched the, the Orcel wind concept because we'd seen that technology had developed to a point where it seemed it was just possible that we could actually build uh, not exactly the Orcel vessel, but something quite closely resembling it. And we knew that, you know, it, I think it's typical that with most, most concept vessels, like most concept cars, the exact product is never finally is, is not what materializes. But it's, it definitely gives you a direction. And so with the Orcel wind, um, the stage that we're at uh, is that there are two major areas of activity. The first is that we are doing detailed design work uh, on this concept to, you know, to, to really flesh out the, you know, all of the different systems and then subsystems of the vessel. Um, and so that's you know, the, the major criteria really becoming to emerge at this stage. The second critical part, uh, activity area, is the assessment, because you know you might have known you know the expression you know 
what's the fastest way to become a millionaire in shipping? The start as a billionaire and make the wrong decisions. And so that's why the assessment is so critically important, because we need to establish uh, that there is a viable business case for this vessel. And I can give you just a very quick potted um, uh, overview of, of what that assessment uh, entails. There are really five areas that need to be or criteria that need to be satisfied. And it just very quickly, it, we need to know, does this make technical sense? Will it have this, uh, for example, the stability attributes that we need it to have? Will it have the safety attributes we need it to have? Does it make operational sense? Is this a vessel that we can deploy on trade routes around the world or will it only suit the, the wind conditions in the North Atlantic, for example? We need that flexibility. Will we be able to navigate under bridges? Um, because with the, you know, the, the sail, the wing sails fully extended, they'll have an air draft of 100 meters. That's more than most bridges. So they, of course, telescope, um, and we need to know that that actually, that, that will work. We need to know, does it make financial sense? And that question is, uh, is a little bit deceptive because it's not just in the you know, question to answer in today's terms, but we need to know what about five years or 10 or 15 years from now, will it make sense? And it's really important to consider that the frame of reference of the industry is changing. It changes because of regulation, it changes because of advances in innovation, and it changes because of the demands that stakeholders like customers, our financial stakeholders are putting on us. So what's, in other words, financially attractive today isn't necessarily going to be the, you know, what's financially attractive tomorrow. New things, conversely, can become attractive that aren't currently attractive. So that was, just to, to recap, that was the technical, the operational, um, and the, the financial part. The other two parts are the regulatory uh, aspect. And with a wind-powered vessel, Probably the main regulatory concerns have more to do with class rules than, than IMO rules. But the sister, the vessel will have a supplementary power system for when the wind isn't blowing as, you might, as we might want it. And if there are emissions that are relating to that system, well, then, of course, there's, a, there's going to be a regulatory uh, consideration there, too. And then finally, uh, the fifth element, which I think is, uh, tends to often get left out, is does it make commercial sense? Will we be able to offer a service that's competitive to relative to you know what other carriers are offering if we adopt uh, a vessel such as this? And that one really you know, raises a lot of questions about you know what the uh, what regulation will do with other uh, you know to to the existing fleet, as well as what other technologies may come to uh, to fruition during that time, and um, whether the uh, this, uh, you know, the, what the demands of customers, how they may or might evolve over the, 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 you know, the 20, 25 year operating lifetime of a vessel. Well, that's all very exciting. Thank, thank you for that. But let's put some numbers on this because you've been working on the research and development, as you say, since 2005. Thinking about carbon intensity and the improvements mm -hmm. that you've made over that time, um, how well have you been doing? Well, I think, you know, why do, I think it's a good question to start with, you know, what motivates us to improve on our carbon intensity? Is it because it's just the right thing to do, which is, we would argue, is a pretty good reason for a start. But there's more to it than that. 
in in our business that operational efficiency and fuel efficiency is obviously a key component of that is the foundation of how you compete if you don't constantly improve you're going to find yourself at a, a very steep cost disadvantage relative to your competitors and you may not be able to continue as a going concern uh, in the business so that's you know just uh, to speak to why it's so important for us and why we will continue to work on it whether regulators are applying pressure or not this is absolutely a core perennial business focus between 2008 and 2020 we have reduced our carbon intensity by a third and there are a number of factors which have played into that um, they include fleet renewal every new version of ship is uh, is obviously is you know, more the latest technologies and it's just simply a, a more efficient design than what it replaces. On average, the size of ships have actually increased a little bit, not nothing like the degree that we've seen on the container side, but still it's been a contributing part. One of the, you know, the, the, the least obvious uh, improvement uh, factors has been the enlargement of the Panama Canal. And that's uh, had a role be, uh, to play because the old locks are, um, they were about 32 and a half meters wide or 33 meters. And the vessels that we had at that time, they were 32 and a half meters of beam. So they are absolutely as large as possible. Of course, the new locks are 57 or something meters wide. And so the latest series of vessels we have, uh, we've built are considerably greater beam. That's 36 and a half, 37 meters. And vessels that are wider are inherently more stable they require less permanent, ball uh, permanent ballast. So that's actually had a virtuous effect in improving the efficiency of the vessel. Not an obvious one, I grant you that, but it's certainly, I think it's, uh, you know, for the, the, the industry insider, it very quickly makes sense why that actually, uh, how, that, uh, how that works. So 33% improvement between 2008 and 2020, um, some would say, you don't have far to go to hit uh, hit the necessary targets, but I'm sure it's not as straightforward as that. Well, well, Richard, I, I wish that some were right in saying that because you know the the tendency for a lot of people is to look at that number and say, okay, well, you've got a you know, you've got another nine years to find seven percent, and unfortunately, it's much more complex than that because for a start, that's a fleet result. IMO currently regulates on a per vessel basis, not on a per fleet basis. Also, the target for 2030, if you actually really look at it, it is set at a uh, as as an average across global shipping. And so there's nothing to say that that will be evenly distributed. Of course, it should be. Anything else would be very unfair uh, and create market distortion. But we don't know. This is a, you know, all of this is um, uh, is shrouded in quite a lot of uncertainty. And it's also you know, a regrettable um, truth that there is no assumption to, that you can make that the gains that uh, we've already, uh, you know, we've invested in so much, uh, so much to achieve that we'll actually get credit for those because it has to do with how reference lines are drawn. Um, they're not necessarily drawn in, a, in an equitable way. So 
it's a you know we could spend uh, another fortnight on this topic but uh, you know your first statement was uh, i think was more than uh, adequate to, to describe the situation it's not just finding seven percent in nine years for us unfortunately okay thanks for clarifying that um Look, I know personally you, you've always been an advocate for collaboration between um, the government sector, the academic sector and, and the private sectors in meeting this sustainability challenge. Yeah. And I'd like to ask how these three should be working together more closely. I think it's the, the need for that collaboration is greater now than ever because of the scale of the challenge that we face with decarbonisation. The, there will be a level of difficulty and disruption that, that's just unprecedented. And it's something that's far greater than, I believe, the, than our company or any company. It's a country level. And in fact, I'd say I go further than that. I'd say it's a global level of challenge. And to be effective in solving that challenge as fast as possible, and that is a pretty important component of it as well, we're going to need the most effective type of collaboration between all of the key stakeholders that you mentioned. So shipping companies, the supplier base, uh, world's innovators, in fact, and more broadly, and uh, academia and uh, and government. Because, I mean, the, just to, for the role of government, regulation, I think there's no mistaking the fact, is going to be key in helping to, to drive progress. But we want to do this as fast as possible. And I think to do that, we need to be as efficient as possible and creating effective regulation. In other words, regulation that achieves as much change as fast as possible for the minimum of, uh, of expense. That really will come from a close and um, uh, productive dialogue between the, you know, the, the, the uh, shipping companies who are predisposed to, to taking on this challenge and, uh, uh, and the regulatory community, you know, so and official them. That, I think, uh, and then supplemented, of course, is a role there as well for, for academia to provide the, you know, the, the clarity of you know, where we're at today uh, and, good, uh, and good policy input too. If we can do that, we maximize our chances. If other approaches are taken, I think there's every danger we could end up, uh, you know, having a lost decade in terms of uh, you know, progress that could be achieved better in a, by taking another approach. We don't have that luxury. So um, I think that when challenges, uh, and there are many that are presented, you know, arise with the likes of the, the carbon intensity indicator measures, the wrong approach is to just brush them aside and and you know believe that somehow things will work out. That's going to you know I think that there's the, the danger there is that you know you you will harm companies who would otherwise be your uh, the best proponents of driving change. Uh, and I think that doesn't actually help anybody's interests. Um, thank you for that. I think you've made very clear that the the way to sustainability is a mixture of both digitalization and, and decarbonization. Um, yeah. But I think you've also said we're, we're under time pressure uh, mm. as never before. So thank you so much for your, your thoughts uh, today. Um, 
many industry experts caution that a move to sustainable shipping is the largest transformation ever undertaken by uh, our industry. And the discussion at IMO and elsewhere revolves around a range of fuels uh, to help meet our sustainability goals. Perhaps the example of companies such as Valenius Wilhelmsen shows there's much to be done while we wait for these fuels to become available. Thank you, Roger. Thank you for your time. And thank you for listening to this Lloyd's List podcast. Thank you very much for having me.